My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. The Walk of Fame had to be somewhere. This is the 16th episode of the history of film, The Stars Are Born. Hello and welcome back to the history of film. First, I have a quick correction. Last week, I played a clip from The Avengers and stated it came out a year earlier than it did, 2011 instead of 2012. Mistakes like this aren't very common in the history of film, but they have happened and no doubt they will in the future. For any new listeners, know that I usually put minor corrections like the release year of a movie being off by one in the epilogue portion of the show, so stick around to the end for those. Also in the epilogue, I sometimes include bonus facts that didn't make it into the regular show, which I hope is as fun for you as it is for me. Today we finish what we started last week, the downfall of the MPPC, also called the Trust, the original film monopoly of the United States led by Thomas Edison. This happened for many reasons, but there are some that are more important than others. The ones we have and will focus on include changes in the length of cinema presentation, i.e. the feature film, the rise of independent film production companies, the movement of film production in the United States from its east coast to its west, and a revolution in cinema marketing called the star system. The reason I'm focusing on these factors in particular is because they are the most important to the downfall of the trust, one of the landmark events of early U.S. cinematic history, and also each of them will have a lasting impact on the landscape of the U.S. film industry until today. Last episode, we talked about the rise of independent filmmakers, some of whom, like Adolf Zukor and Carl Lamley, will run major film studios in the next epoch of American film. We also covered the transition from short films to feature films as the dominant form of motion picture consumption. This episode, we tackle the other half, and that means cinema in the U.S. is about to move to a little California town called Hollywood. In 1910, film producers in the United States were working on the East Coast, in states like New York and New Jersey. This made a lot of sense at the time. The vast majority of major cities were in the East, and producers were already there. In the case of the then king of the movies, Thomas Edison, he had a lot besides movies going on in the East. Edison had to stay in New Jersey because of his tons of other operations there. Likewise, collaborating and competing studios like Biograph or IMP stayed in their home areas and where the action was, as more and more studios began to spring up around one another. Think back to Alice Guy's Solax Studio, which was founded in 1910. The Solax portion of her story in episode 11 is actually happening right now chronologically. She set up shop in Fort Lee, New Jersey, in the heart of the film scene. For many studios and studio heads, Fort Lee seemed an ideal place to make movies. It wasn't far from beautiful outdoor locations, including cliffs, forests, and waterfalls, and was close enough to Broadway to get the scoop on the latest theater trends happening there. It's hard to find this written specifically in any book, but the benefits of having the lion's share of film studios in one geographic location are fairly easy to parse out. Having an industry centered in one area made attracting talent to it much easier, and also facilitated the sharing of resources among studios. Once again, Alice Guy is a great example. She would rent out her studio to other producers when she wasn't using it, 
something that would have been impractical if studios were hundreds of miles apart from each other. So Fort Lee specifically, and New York and New Jersey generally, began to be the home of many cameramen, film developers, film actors, producers, and mechanics. As film production in the United States soared to incredible heights, film infrastructure in the East was building up quickly, but in a predictable game of question and answer, what could possibly go wrong? Oh, that's right, Thomas Edison. If any of you have seen the wonderful Jim Henson movie The Dark Crystal from 1982, you likely have vivid memories of the scene where the evil bird-like emperor clutches his scepter, sits up sharply, and says, Before he crumbles into dust. That's how you should imagine Thomas Edison. In the midst of the patent wars that he started, which would eventually lead to his elimination as a major player in the film industry, he clung to his scepter and to his monopoly. This clinging took many forms. We already know about the lawsuits, of which Edison launched over 300 against Carl Lindley and the Independents over the course of several years. But unfortunately for Edison, the gummy gears of bureaucracy were not moving fast enough for the Wizard of Menlo Park, so he turned to means that were, shall we say, extra-legal. Edison's methods began comparatively innocent, hiring private detectives to shadow, harass, threaten, and assault anyone who wasn't paying the trust's required dues. Those verbs came directly from Carl Lemley's account of the period. And remember, that was the nice stuff. Soon, Edison and the trust would hire gangsters to make an even more forceful impression on the uncomplying studios. That's where we get the stories of Edison's goons blasting away at film cameras from episode 14, and those same people would also burn down whole studios. The independents would resort to similar methods themselves, but another solution was ultimately needed. That solution was a change of location, far away from the direct influence of Thomas Edison and his eyes, ears, and muscle throughout the area. The refuge for the storm would be just about as far away from New Jersey as someone could be in the contiguous United States, a small suburb of Los Angeles called Hollywood. Southern California in the early 20th century must have seemed like a wonderland for filmmakers. Taxes were low, land and labor were cheap, and the year-round sunny weather made location shoots possible even in the winter. California's diverse topography made shooting in mountains and in valleys, by lakes or the sea, and in deserts and forests accessible. Westerns would no longer have to be shot only in the woods, like we saw in The Great Train Robbery. But what really set Hollywood apart from anywhere else was its distance from Edison and its nearness to Mexico. If the trust came knocking, a film producer could just pack up their equipment and hide out in Mexico for a little while, where the trust had little power to do anything to or about them. The trust did send its goons, but it would ultimately lose control, even with some MPPC studios like Biograph and Essany moving to Hollywood around the same time as the independents. By 1915, 60% of the US film industry was located in Hollywood. By 1919, 80% of all movies in the world were coming from Southern California, setting the stage for Hollywood's international dominance that would last for decades. While the independents heading to Southern California may have slowed the trust down, it didn't stop it. The trust was being stopped by a myriad of other factors, many of them their own fault. By all accounts, poor business practices and counterproductive policies by the trust were beginning to cripple its ability to exist in the 19-teens, 
much less shake out every nickel and dime from all corners of the film industry. It was one of these short-sighted policies that Carl Lemley would capitalize on to finally, metaphorically, burn the trust to the ground. It was his forte, his expertise, and his greatest talent. Advertising. Lemley was quick to attack the trust in trade papers, using both powerful satire and convincing rhetoric to lampoon the MPPC to exhibitors. In one advertisement, Lemley writes in bold at the top, Come out of it, Mr. Exhibitor. The ad has it all. There's a comic at the top that anthropomorphizes the trust, showing it to be both gluttonous and corrupt. Lemley claims that the trust's leaders didn't have any more nerve than God gave a little kitten, and spread personal lies about him because they knew and feared the quality of his product. He slyly praises the intelligence of the exhibitor reading the ad, and ends with a call to arms. Quote, Ask yourself this one question. Am I going to pay $2 a week, every week I am in business, for the right to run my own theater and use my own goods? The Come Out of It ad is over 100 years old, and it shows its age, but it's still pretty good as far as the rhetoric goes. Lemley brags throughout the ad of his success in the motion picture business despite pressure from the trust. I think a large part of that success comes from Lemley's ability to make a sales pitch that would make people stop and listen. But those trade paper ads would be small potatoes compared to the revolution coming in film, the rise of movie stardom. The MPPC, ever the lover of policies, turned out to have some pretty bad ones. We've already seen one, its failure to quickly adapt to the advent of the feature film, but that looks absolutely brilliant next to their myopic insistence that no one associated with their motion pictures, on or off-screen, ever received credit for their work in any way. At first, people not receiving screen credit wasn't really a problem. We've mentioned before that many people working in motion pictures preferred to remain anonymous, and before the invention and widespread use of the close-up shot, it didn't really matter who the actors were, as the audience couldn't get a good look at their faces anyway. But by the mid-19-teens, movies were becoming fairly sophisticated in their selection and variety of shots. As audiences saw actors in various roles glide across the silver screen, they naturally became interested in who the actors actually were. Moviegoers wrote into studios to ask for information about the people they saw on screen, but the studios kept quiet. Their logic for this was actually correct. The leaders of the MPPC felt that if the public knew the names of their favorite actors, those actors would have increased leverage to negotiate with the studios that employed them. Specifically, actors could use their popularity to demand higher pay. This wasn't an option for the leaders of the Trust, who were eager to make film production as inexpensive and efficient as possible. Ultimately, this plan was short-sighted. Certainly, popular actors would be able to demand higher salary because of their fame, but more people would also be drawn to see shows that included their favorite actors. With some exceptions, actors were kept anonymous. They would be known by the names of the characters they played, like Little Mary, or the studios that they worked for, like The Biograph Girl. For the moment, the MPPC had their way, but all of that was about to change. One of the reasons the general refusal of the trust to give screen credits to actors seems so strange is that there was already a stage star system for acting in the United States, which worked for stage theaters in the way we just described. So while the trust generally buried their head in the sand and ignored the possible financial benefits of casting and creating stars, Lemley didn't share their scruples. In 1909, he hired Florence Lawrence, 
the popular actress who recently separated from Biograph and D.W. Griffith to begin working for Lemley's company, IMP. Importing the star system from the stage, Lemley set out to make a name for Florence so popular that it would draw people to see the movies she was in just because she was in them. And so the person known simply as the Biograph Girl the year before became Florence Lawrence, now nicknamed, according to Lemley, the Imp Girl. Accounts differ, but either a theater owner trying to draw up publicity or Lemley himself circulated anonymous and false reports that Florence Lawrence had been killed in a car accident. The supposed news made its way through the press, and the public learned the identity of the woman they knew only as the Biograph Girl at the same time they mourned her tragic and untimely death. Regardless of who actually began the rumor, Lemley knew how to capitalize on it, and did so with a vengeance. He released an ad to the public with the bold title, We Nail a Lie. The ad had a picture of Florence Lawrence, her name and photograph inextricably tied together on the page. The ad read, the blackest and at the same time the silliest lie yet circulated by enemies of the imp was the story foisted on the public of St. Louis last week to the effect that Miss Lawrence, the imp girl, formerly known as the Biograph Girl, had been killed by a streetcar. It was a black lie because so cowardly. It was a silly lie because so easily disproved. Miss Lawrence was not even in a streetcar accident, is in the best of health, and will continue to appear in imp films. And, very shortly, some of the best work of her career is to be released. The scheme went off without a hitch, and with a personal appearance from Lawrence at the opening of her new film in St. Louis, she was catapulted into modern motion picture stardom. While not technically the first movie star, Max Linder's name was used to sell films to the public just a little bit earlier in France, Lawrence's transition to being a star is what broke the dam of anonymity and made the star system a permanent fixture of the motion picture industry. Soon, every studio, even those in the trust, would be using the names of the people acting in and making their movies to convince audiences to come see their favorites on the screen. The motion picture industry was quickly changing, and the MPPC would be overwhelmed by it. The trust began its decline in 1913. In 1915, the Supreme Court of the United States would declare the MPPC to be what it was, a trust, and ordered it dissolved under the Sherman Antitrust Act. The independents, largely led by Carl Lemley, had won their victory. Edison would be a name forever associated with the history of the motion picture, but would no longer be involved with its economy or industry, and so the history of film bids him farewell. In the ashes of the MPPC, the independents would build castles. And that is where we leave Hollywood for now. In future episodes, we will cover the various studios that began to take power before 1920, but we have a lot of film history to explore before we get there. Next week, we will be staying in the United States to cover the beginning of animated film, before heading back to Europe and spending some episodes talking about the movies that were so important to episode 15, the feature films developing in France and Italy. After that, it will be back to the U.S. to begin a series of episodes about early cinema's most celebrated director, D.W. Griffith, whose work and career pushed the medium of cinema forward dramatically and caused incalculable damage to millions of black Americans, creating ripples that are still felt and reckoned with today. But before we can get to any of that, we need to learn about one filmmaker and his pet dinosaur.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The History of Film. I actually have a couple of facts to put at the end of the show today. The first, and most important, is that, like always, film history is more complicated than it seems. While Lemley and Imp are pretty much always credited with beginning the star system in motion pictures, a trust studio, Vitagraph, began to give their star Florence Turner named Billing at the same time Imp was doing so with Florence Lawrence. Perhaps it was all the crazy, blackest, and silliest lie publicity stuff, or maybe it was because the trust ended up crumbling, but for whatever reason, Lawrence is generally accepted as being the first American star, and Turner is usually relegated to a footnote, if that. Lawrence is the figure generally described in the histories, so that's the story I've presented here. Just know, it's always a little more complicated than that. The second and more fun fact is that Cecil B. DeMille, an early Hollywood filmmaker and very famous director we will talk about in future episodes, survived two assassination attempts from the Trust's enforcers while working on a movie in 1913. Fearing for his safety, DeMille brought home a wolf for protection. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit the show's website, historyoffilmpodcast.com, to view resources for each episode. If you like the show and want to help it grow, there are a couple ways you can do that. The first is telling your friends about it, and the second is leaving a review wherever you listen. Thank you once again for listening, and join me next week for another exciting episode of the History of Film.